But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that have happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cheryl. Today we're continuing our series called This Is Us. And um, what we're doing is we are exploring, just at the beginning of the year, the core values of our church, who we are. Um, This isn't just for people who are kicking the tires and asking themselves the question, is this possibly my future church home? But this is for all of us to remind us of who we are. Throughout the scriptures, um, prophets and leaders of God's people told told them, remember God's word, remember what God has done, set up memorials, always go back to what God has said and what God has done to make sure that you properly frame your future in him. And so that's what we're doing. We're spending some time just over the next few weeks discussing really four major core values in our church. And uh, the one that I'm going to be talking about today is biblical truth. Biblical truth. Why the Bible is the backbone of who we are as a church. And what exactly that looks like. 
Um, I feel a little um, ill-equipped for this talk simply because I don't think you can say this in one talk, not in 30 or 40 minutes. But I'm going to do my best and uh, bring us back to the very, very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, because I think that in our culture, especially in the South, the Bible Belt South, there are a lot of folks who have such an over-familiarity with the Bible that um, it's hard to be captured by it. It's hard to be mesmerized by it. Not because the Bible is dull or boring, but because we've just been so exposed to it and so many years we've spent thinking about it and having people preach to us about it. And yet, ironically, so many of us in the Bible Belt South have spent so little real time digging into the Bible. And so I want us to remember why the scriptures are important, why the centrality of our service is focused on God's word, why God's word is everything. Other things are wonderful about our church, but we desire that God's word be the backbone of everything that we do. And so I think really to understand, to begin to understand, um, or let me put it this way. If you have a desire to know God's word and to be mesmerized by God's word, I don't think that can happen unless you know why God put you here in the first place. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. Um, We want you at our church to be shaped by God's word. We want you to be changed by it. We want God's word to blow the doors and the walls out of your beliefs, and we want God to raise you up as a new person. We want that to happen in your life. It's happened with a lot of us. We want it to happen with everybody in our church and to continue happening in our church. So I want to go to Genesis chapter 1 just for a couple of moments, and I want to bring us back to why we are here. Now, uh, so Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the Scripture says this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void. And so the earth that God begins with is an earth that doesn't somehow have form and is void of life. That's how I read that. So it's been created, but it's not complete. It's got a lot of raw materials hanging around, I think but there's a lot of work to be done. And darkness was over the face of the deep. There was no light. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. One of the great mysteries of following Jesus is that over the deeps, over the deeps of our lives, the waters, there's great darkness and there is the Spirit. And that's hard sometimes to live in this life when there are so many unanswered questions. But... This is the raw form of the earth. It is dark. It is undeveloped. But God is there. God is there. So, now I want to I make a couple of points here before we move on. This was not intended to be a thorough examination of the creation account. Of the creation. I want to remind you or instruct you if you weren't aware that this was not Uh, This is not written to Adam and Eve. This was written, this was given to Moses by God who wrote it down and communicated these words 
to the newly emancipated Israelites in the wilderness. This was not given to Adam and Eve. This is about Adam and Eve and the creation and all that stuff. But this Genesis 1, the book of Genesis, was given to Moses by God, and Moses taught the children of Israel who were just liberated from Egypt, who had been shaped by slavery and oppression, who were shaped in a land where there were uh, some 40-odd pagan idols that the Egyptians bowed down to. He brought them out of the land. Remember, let my people go. He brought them into the wilderness, and it's at Mount Sinai and in the wilderness that God gave Moses these words. And so this is a book that was written to newly emancipated slaves. This was not a book that was written to scientists to tease out how the earth came to be. That's not the point here. I'm not saying it doesn't have value in those conversations, but that's not the intent of Genesis chapter 1. The intent of Genesis chapter 1 was a word from God to introduce himself to newly emancipated Israelites, the Hebrews, the sons of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's chosen nation. And the word was to them, and it sought to answer this one question. The book of Genesis answers this, or at least Genesis chapter 1 through 3, answers this question. What is God like, and what does he require of us? That's what Genesis 1 answers. It's not, what are the origins of the universe? That's not the question that Genesis 1 seeks to answer. Again, I'm not saying that you can't go to Genesis 1 to think about that question. But the intent that drives Genesis 1 is not, or do, we live, or do we live in an old earth or a new earth? What about evolution? What about the Big Bang Theory? God is not interacting with those questions in this text. What God is showing the Israelites who are newly emancipated slaves in the wilderness is this. I want to introduce myself to you. I am Yahweh, the same God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. I want to introduce you to who I am, how I feel, what I think, and how you should live in this world. This is the purpose of Genesis chapter 1, and that's how you have to read it. That's how you have to read it. And so, what is God like, and what does God require of us? Now, I want to remind you, this is a huge question, because as I just mentioned a moment ago, Israel spent 430 years in the land of Egypt, where, where Yahweh, and Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God, uh, it's... We're talking about the one true God. When I say that, you're like, Yahweh, am I, am I like a Mormon church or something? No, you're at a Christian church. Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God. It's the name that God told Moses to tell the children of Israel when he sent him into Egypt to free them. And what Yahweh means is, I am who I am. I will do what I will do. There is no category that can contain me. You cannot reduce my image, my nature, my personality down to anything that you can relate to on the earth. Nothing on the earth relates to me. I am wholly different than anything you've ever seen or conceived. I am holy. That's what holy means. He's different. He's distinct. He says, you go into the land of, into the, uh, the, uh, land of Egypt, lead out my people, for, lead out the Israelites, lead them in, into freedom, and then you share some things with them. Now remember, the Israelites were in a land, as I mentioned mo a moment ago, where there were dozens and dozens of idols. Not only that, but for the next 
several thousand years, the, the Israelites dwelt in what we now know as Israel and some other regions around that. And in those areas called the ancient Near East, in that area, there were some uh, thousands and thousands of false pagan idols that were bowed down to and worshipped by other countries, other ethnic groups, other nations. And so God wanted to make sure that the people of God knew who it really was who created the earth. It wasn't Ra, the sun god from Egypt. It was Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these were, I just want to give you an idea of some of the gods, false gods, that Israel would have uh, bumped into over the next couple of thousand years. Here's the first one. This guy's name is Marduk. Not Marmaduke, Marduk. Marduk is the snake dragon that like the Assyrians and the Babylonians worshipped. And uh, he was not a nice dude in their mythology. Marduk, okay? Um, look at the next one. This is Dagon. He's the fish god. He is, uh, was a Canaanite god, primarily the, uh, the uh, token god of the Philistines. The Philistines. Remember the story about how the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant? And then they took the Ark of the Covenant and locked it in the lair of Dagon. And then they came back one day, and Dagon had fallen over, and his hands and his head had busted off. Um, yeah, really interesting. So God was sending a message. So that's Dagon. Notice how he's got, he looks like a mermaid. And his head is like a fish head on top of his head, and he's got scales. And this is how the Philistines and the Canaanites would have envisioned Dagon. And the next one, this is uh, Baal. You probably hear about Baal a lot when you read the Old Testament, but Baal was a bull. Go ahead. I know you want to say it. Yeah, he's a bull guy. So um, I just envisioned a lot of people going, oh, like bull. Anyway, so um, bad, bad joke. So Baal was a bull. Uh, there, was, there were other, in, there were other uh, ideas of what Baal looked like. Baal in some other cultures in, the, in Canaan uh, looked like a goat. But this is, these are ancient idols, that, and this is what people envisioned their God to look like, the creator of the world. Now look at this next one. This is Ra. This is the sun god. And Ra, the sun god, has the body of a man, but he has the head of a hawk. And in that left picture, there's the sun over his head, and there's a snake that's wrapped around that sun. The Israelites would have known about Ra, the sun god. Now, what, is it, what do all those gods have in common at first glance? What's that? Animals. Animals. You see, the ancients wanted to reduce God to something they could relate to. And they reduced him also to a function. So like a bull. It's not just because they really liked bulls a lot. They needed bulls. They needed milk. They, I know milk comes from cows, but you get my point. So uh, they needed meat. They needed sustenance. They needed livestock that could work agriculture. And so it was really, really important that their gods kept bulls alive so that they could have food and all that kind of stuff. This is the kind of thing that was typical of all pagan idolatry thousands of years ago and even pagan idolatry that is worshipped and adhered to today. Um, I want to give you a quick definition of idolatry. Idolatry is the belief that one's God or gods inhabits or is represented by an image such as a statue. It's the belief that one's God or God's inhabits or is represented by an image such as a statue. Now, if you lived in that civilization 
where there were literally thousands and thousands of pagan idols. The idea that there was one true God who had no idol representing him was foreign, totally foreign. As foreign for us as pagan idols are, one true God having no idol was foreign to the Israelites. So this is what God wants them to know about him. He is the creator, and he does not look like anything we've seen on the earth. Or does he? That's why we're going to skip forward to uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Check this out. Then God said, now he's created the, the stars and the planets. He separated the night from day. He said, let there be light. He separated uh, uh, the, the land from the waters. He's made animals. He's made vegetation. He's made creeping things. He's made birds. He's made fish. He's made all of this stuff. And then to crown the process of creating, he makes humanity. And this is what the scripture says in 1, 26 and 20, through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what did he just say in that verse? What did he say about us? We're made in his image. Interesting. That word image. Hold on to that word for a second. We're made in his image. And because there's no period in Hebrew, you keep on reading. What does it mean to be made in God's image? We are given the stewardship to continue ruling and overseeing this world at God's side. That's the stewardship we're given. But check this out. It doesn't stop there. Verse 27. So God created man and woman in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That image, that word's important. Image, image, image. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. He blessed the images of God on the earth. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so the big ideas, huge ideas, we can pull out of those three verses. Three verses is this. God made humanity in his image. Somehow we represent God on the earth. How do we represent God? In at least two ways. One We rule over the earth as the dominant species. So everything that was made was made for us, for our enjoyment and our stewardship. But not only that, not only that, but we were also called to create culture in this earth. He said, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. God told humanity, he said, hey, I have made the earth in such a way that it's incomplete. There are raw materials at your disposal. The earth has not been finished. It's round. It's got water. It's got bugs. It's got cows. It's got all this stuff. Your job is to finish 
cultivating the earth. And so the cultivation of the earth can be boiled down to creating an environment in our world that is for the common good. This is where the Hebrew idea of shalom comes from. Shalom, which is a common Jewish greeting, has a lot of roots in all of the scriptures. And shalom basically means this. Anybody ever heard the word shalom before? Okay, shalom um, it means this. Shalom, the common Jewish greeting, simply means a blessing. In the same way God blessed humanity, a blessing in which one pronounces wholeness and completeness. So God blesses his people and he commissions his people to bring shalom to the world. Wholeness and completeness. That's what we're to do. Every one of us, not just preachers. Every human that exists is called to be an agent of shalom. Wholeness and completeness wherever we go. Of course, the temptation is is to be greedy and to acquire stuff and to use this world's resources. And when I say resources, I don't mean just like gas and oil and electricity. I'm talking about resources way beyond that. I'm talking about art. I'm talking about music. I'm talking about our livelihoods. I'm talking about our families. The deception is, is that we can use all of these things for our own hedonistic enjoyment. And God said, no, I did put you here to enjoy this stuff, but also to bring shalom to everyone else. Wholeness and completeness to all of humankind. That's what we're called to do. The whole scripture envisions this wholeness in every realm of heaven. Politically, in which peace and, uh, which, uh, which peace and a passion for the common good replaces war and corruption. Socially, in which love replaces strife. Economically, in which abundance and my, in which my needs are filled replaces need. Economic justice. Physical, uh, phys- the physical condition of humanity. This is why Jesus came and he gave us a taste of the powers of the age to come when he healed people. He was showing us what shalom looks like in every possible way. Healing broken hearts, healing sick bodies, bringing justice to people who are oppressed. This is what Jesus did. This is what God did. This is what shalom is. This is who we are called to be, bringers of shalom. This is locked into Genesis chapter 1. This is who we are. This is who we are. This divine mandate was given to every one of us. Now here's the interesting thing. If you fast forward to the book of Exodus, when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is, he said, don't make something. Anybody know what that was? Don't make a graven image of him. Why? Because that's just a bad thing to do? Because one, God Almighty cannot be reduced to a dragon snake or a snake dragon, whichever one. Uh, God can't be reduced to a bull or a goat. He can't be reduced to a hawk. He can't be reduced to an alligator. He can't be reduced to a turtle. He can't be reduced to any of this stuff. Because he's already said what he looks like. We are God's idols on the earth. I know that sounds like heretical and crazy, but it's true. We are God's 
idols on the earth. You don't worship us. But if you want to know what God looks like, God is saying, look at my image, people. Bringers of shalom look like me. Bringers of shalom look like me. We are God's idols. We reflect God's creative, orderly, and peaceful rule, or we should. We should. Jesus said it another way. For shalom, Jesus said this, love. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? A religious leader asked him. And Jesus is, in, in my short paraphrase, is basically this, everybody. Love your neighbor. And the example that Jesus used was somebody that that Pharisee really, 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 really disagreed with. A person that Pharisee said, man, this guy's like heretical, unorthodox, not worthy to be part of the children of God. And Jesus said, that guy's your neighbor. Love him. Love him. We reflect God's creative, orderly, peaceful rule. We are bringers of shalom. But then something took a turn for the worse. You get to Genesis chapter 2, and what happens in Genesis chapter 2? God uh, shows the, uh, sorry, in Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam and Eve, he says, hey, listen, you can eat from any tree of the garden, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why can't they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, here's the question. What does God want the Israelites to know who are in the wilderness who don't even know what good and evil is? Their understanding of good and evil was based on Egyptian theology. What does God want the Israelites to know about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What he wants them to know is this, is that God is the one who decides what good and evil is. God is the one who decides what is pure and what is impure. God is the one who decides. Yahweh decides what is holy and what is unholy. God decides that. And the moment that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree that I believe was literal, I do, I believe that, uh, the moment you eat of that tree is the moment that you decide that you're going to be the one who figures out what's good and evil, what's best for your life, and what's not good for your life. People are still eating from that tree every day, even in the church. We love Jesus, except when I come across that verse that messes with my life. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. Nobody ever quotes like the marriage verses, the fornication verses, you know, like nobody ever has that strapped to their rearview mirror, you know, because that messes with us. The fact that God exercises lordship over our sexuality, our marriage, our parenting, the way we do friendship, the way we deal with our money. He is Lord over all of that stuff, all of it. He's Lord over our politics. He's Lord over every bit of our lives, every bit, every part of it. And so humanity ate of that tree and humanity fell thus polluting the whole human race. The whole human race, born into sin, as the Apostle Paul says, we are born believing that we know what's best for our lives. I know what's really good and what's really evil, what's bad for me and what's good for me. And this is why we need Jesus so, so much. What's interesting is you get to the account of Noah a few chapters later, and God judges the whole civilization. Noah, his whole family, they were born into sin. And God says when they come out of the ark, he said, make sure you don't murder because man is created in my image. So even in our sinful state, 
we are still image bearers of God. But God's image has been tarnished in our lives. God's image has been tarnished in our lives. And then we get to the New Testament. So what do the scriptures say about God's tarnished image? What do the scriptures say about the fact that we are all broken? That we are all in rebellion against God? What do the scriptures say about that? What do the scriptures say about our spiritual pride? What do the scriptures say about our hedonism and our love of acquiring things and tasting things and always having things and and experiencing things? What does the Bible say about that stuff? It says simply, we are broken. We are sinful. We are at odds with the reason why we were created as bringers of shalom and peace and wholeness and love to our world. We are God's idols on this earth and the image of God has been tarnished in what God looks like. So that's got to be repaired. And so God sends Jesus. God sends Jesus. And Jesus shows us what it looks like to walk in God's image. This is why Jesus every day prayed and sought God's face. Every day he expressed his need for God. Every day he broke broke bread, the word of God. He feasted on God. I can do nothing except what God tells me to do, Jesus said. His word is my bread. I need him. He was showing us what it looks like to live as God's true image bearer. But he didn't just say, copy me, because we can't do that. We're broken. We've got impulsive behavior and habits that are really, really jacked up and we need to be changed. And so he sends the Holy Spirit upon his resurrection. The Spirit comes and everyone who believes is filled with the Spirit and is given the potency to live this life well. But here's the problem. If you're raised in the Bible Belt South, then right now your eyes are glazing over if they haven't already because you're like, man, I just don't know many people like that who've been really changed by God's word. The church seems kind of corrupted. Uh, I, I know a lot of people who followed, who say they follow Jesus. And man, I don't really know what the difference is between my life and their life. I hear that all the time these days. What's the difference between my life and their life? And I don't mean just like, like, like blatant sin. I'm talking about, you know, they see the church and they're like, you know, they love the same kind of crazy shows that I watch. They feast in the same entertainment I do. The only difference between me and them is they might read a few verses in the morning and go to church. Like, at least I get my Sundays if I don't follow Jesus. I get to sleep in another day in the weekend. We need Jesus. And so the fact that we are like almost anti-contra images of God in the church, we've got to repent as the church. We've got to repent of that. We've got to repent of that. My dear friend Kenny's sitting over here. Kenny, I didn't tell you I was going to say this. But uh, my dear friend Kenny has been a voice on social media and in the marketplace for the last couple of months over the issue of sexual abuse. It's been loud. It's been confrontational. It's something that we, we as a church need to hear because one of the things that he's showing us and guys like and ladies like him is that this is rampant, not just in the marketplace, but in the church. And this is something that we've got to repent of as the body of Christ. We've got to make sure that we do church in a way that we love our children more than we love the name of the brand or the institution. We have to be that kind of a church. We've got to be that way. We have to. We have to. It's critical that we marry ourselves to God's word, to God's will. We've got to marry ourselves to him. And so there's, I want to pull out a couple of verses here in the, in the New Testament that are really profound, really powerful, I think. Uh, like Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Check this out. 
Paul says this, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, the old self, the old broken self, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the what? Image of its creator. You think Paul intended to use that terminology for a reason there? He wants to see us as the church restored as image bearers of God himself. That's who we are. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Too many of us have that verse memorized and not the one after it that brings context to this verse. What does he say? He says in the first verse, in Romans 8, 28, he says, all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called by him. Man, my car will never get a flat ever again because I love God. That's not what he's saying here. That is not what he's saying here. He's not saying hard times won't come. Look what he says in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, means he loved before they even loved him, foreloved. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed. Conformed to what? The image of his son. Genesis 1 is all over this. It was the assumption of the New Testament writers that God is getting us back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Image bearers conformed to the image of his son in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. What does he mean by that? The firstborn among many brothers. So that a bunch of people will look like Jesus. A bunch of people will reflect God. A bunch of people on the earth will be agents of shalom wherever we go. Peacemakers, love givers, justice bringers. This is what it looks like to be changed as followers of Jesus. Too many of us in the Southern church, our target is reading the Bible every day and praying every day. Those are good things and you should do those things. But God is not into just raising up a moralistic group of people. God is raising up people who bring shalom to a broken world. Watch the news. Tell me our world doesn't need agents of shalom. Tell me our world doesn't need image bearers to emerge and show the beauty of God, that he's just flat out better and more attractive than all the other hedonistic stuff that we love. He's just better. And so how does the scripture primarily shape us? Last, last part. How does the scripture primarily shape us? I believe that the, in the same way that God raised up humanity to fill this world with culture and cities and art and music, And love, in the same way that God uses us as tools to do that, he uses the word of God as his tool to reshape us, to make us those image bearers. And this is why I want to challenge us to read 2 Thessalonians 3 with new eyes. New eyes. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to stop there. We're going to pick up. Again, we're not done talking about biblical truth. I think I've given you a lot to digest today. (laughs) I want to ask you really briefly, what did you hear? Just yell it out to me. 
What about the image of God? We're being renewed into what? The image of God. Okay, what is the image of God? How does, what does that look like in our world? Shalom. What does shalom mean? Bring peace, wholeness. What else? Love. Okay. So let me ask you something. Are there areas of your life that you can look at and say, you know what? I'm not bringing shalom. I'm not a person of shalom. Maybe it's your Facebook thread. I'm not picking fights with anybody. I'm really not. But maybe it's your Facebook thread. Have you noticed like myself that like five minutes on Facebook jacks up your anxiety 1,000%? You ever noticed that? And have you ever noticed that when you take a break from it, like your peace increases 1,000%? The problem is that there are so many people on social media that aren't really connected and aren't really known that they so badly want to spill their hearts. And our church has to be a place where people can be known and be loved. So like we've got, like yesterday, we've got hard stuff to talk about. The world's changed, guys. Yesterday, we see the women's marches around the world, and there are people in our church that want me to condemn those marches, especially after Madonna spoke. And there are people in our church who are like, man, get up, Chris, affirm this, validate these things. I can't do either of those because they're so, uh, they're, they're just, they're so gray, these things. Do I believe that women should have rights and be treated respectfully? Absolutely. But I don't think vitriol and hatred accomplishes love and respect. I don't. I don't. And so some of these issues, we just have to go back to God's word and find our satisfaction in God's word. I'm not saying put your head in the sand and don't have an opinion. But we need to be shaped by God's word in such a way that when we speak on these issues, we're not just quoting celebrities. We're quoting God because we are not the image of Madonna. We're the image of Yahweh. We're the image of Yahweh. And Yahweh has an opinion on all of this stuff. And sometimes those opinions are hard to arrive at, which is why the church should be a safe place where we can have these thorny, complex conversations. And when we don't all agree on some of these things, there's still grace and there's still love because we're not going to have full knowledge until Jesus returns. We're not. And so for now, we learn how to dwell together as the body of believers and love one another, be patient with one another. When I say something dumb or stupid and you do, we go back and say, man, sorry. And we own it. We repair our relationships. We, we do what the scriptures say, speak gently and speak in love and speak tenderly. That's all over the New Testament. Why? Because God's raised us up to be bringers of shalom. And if your truth is, has any void of love, then it's not truth anymore. It's a mallet. It's a hammer. And the only thing hammers good for are finding nails. That's it. That's the only thing. God's not called us to be hammers. God's called us to be bringers of shalom. So who are we? God's images or God's idols, right? And you know when I say God's idols that we're not like pagan shrines that you bow down to? I'm not saying that. But we're God's images. We're God's images. Because the same word in Hebrew for image is used by other cultures for their idols. It's interesting that God used that. So anyway, um, so we're God's images. And what are God's images? What do we do? We bring shalom. What does shalom mean? We bring peace, wholeness, joy, love, order, justice, completeness. We do all these things. This is what God's people do. How does this happen in our lives? How do we become people of shalom? Going to church? 
We've got to practice the word of God. We've got to practice the word of God. And that's what we're going to come back to next week. Lord, I thank you for today. You are good. You are merciful. And I pray, Jesus, in your holy, holy name, that we as your people will be satisfied by your word, that we find our identity in your word, and that we would recognize, realize who we are, your image in this earth. We pray that we would practice the faith so much that we would truly be who you always envisioned us being, bringers of shalom. It's only through Jesus that we can do this. In your name, amen.